Like I said, I'm up from the Irvine campus. It's, it's fun when you're up there. You hear about Mission Viejo all, all the time. So we always hear how incredible you are and how wonderful of a community you guys have down, uh, down here. So it's my privilege just to be here. I'm honored and humbled to stand up here and to be able to talk through God's word with you guys. Um, it's interesting, though. It looks like they gave all you guys juice it up over here. I mean, everyone's, why? Why does that happen? And then you guys get nothing over there? Why? Does that happen every week? That seems, yeah, you guys aren't helping me out at all. Okay, leaving me, hang. Okay, I'm kidding. I'm just trying to cause trouble. Okay, they got nothing. Don't worry, they got nothing. Okay, I'm going to pray, and then we'll go. God, um, we're a group of people. We love you. We're looking to, um, we're looking to know you better, um, draw closer to you, be more like you, God. Um, we, uh, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. We acknowledge who you are, and we just pray, Lord, that as you speak to us, Lord, that our hearts are open to hear what you have um, for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Not too long ago, I'm walking into the kitchen. Uh, I'm walking into the kitchen, my wife's there, and my two uh, teenage boys are there, and I got a little, you know, a little hop in my step a little bit, and my wife goes, why are you all excited? What's going on? And uh, I go, I just got a ticket. And she's like, and you're all excited? And, and, And I go... I go, uh, what was one of those, it was one of those camera tickets, you know, on, on Ortega Highway. I got it right on that Ortega right there. It was one of those camera tickets. And so I was driving through and the flash got me. And, uh, and it, for me, it felt very yellow. I, the, apparently the camera saw it as red, felt like yellow. So I go, I got, it was a camera ticket. And then I go, and then I go to my wife. I go, now remember how you've been kind of, you know, Telling me, I said nagging. Okay, remember how you've been asking me to change the, put my front license plate on the front of the car? I I go, I never got around to it. So it flashed and I saw the camera and I go, there's no no license plate on the front of my car. I go, they're not going to know who I am. I mean, like, how cool is that? So my wife's looking and my boys, you know, they're like fist pumping me because they're thinking dad broke the law and got away with it, which is like, you know, and to get any acknowledgement from your high school kids is, is kind of cool. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Um, two weeks later, I'm sitting down at dinner, and my wife walks over, kind of with a little sheepish grin on her face, and, 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 the, and she slides this across the table and goes, so much for them not knowing um, <laughs> who you are, Jeff. Uh, how ridiculous is that? Look at that. Do I look like, ah, uh, that's like, oh, that's the look of, gosh, whatever. Um, and my boys are like, dad's a loser. Wife's like, you know, you know how much that's going to cost. You know, all the things that you get. It's a difference between going from being the hero to the goat. It was like two weeks, you know, being like, ah, oh, way to go. And, then, eh. and as you think about life, you know, I think about my kids. We, we love to be, uh, we want to be the hero. We want to be the guy. We love to be um, heroic. We love heroic people. I think the notion of wanting to be a hero is something that was maybe even ingrained in us and kids. You remember, maybe you're like me, uh, you'll be shooting baskets as a kid and then mom or dad would call you in for dinner. And, and the last shot is always, the, you know, seventh game, NBA championship, three, two, one, you know. And then if you make it, you're the hero. If you miss it, it's always overtime, and you keep doing it until you, you, know, you make it. So we love being the hero. It's kind of something ingrained in us as kids. Ladies have no idea what I'm talking That's kind of what guys do. So, but we, we kind of do that. We're like, you know, we're like seventh game, World Series, bases loaded, 3-2 pitch. 
We dream about being the hero. We love the hero. Sometimes as we look at heroes and heroic people in our lives, sometimes, sometimes it's athletes, sometimes it's people of faith, sometimes it's, uh, maybe it's people in the military, maybe it's a policeman, maybe it's a fireman, maybe it's people of less fanfare, maybe it's a grandfather, an uncle, or a grandmother. Maybe it's someone you read about. Maybe it's something you see on television. We love heroes. We all love to be heroes. As we think about heroes in the Bible, there's no greater hero, and the one, the one person that kind of jumps out as a hero in the Bible, for all of us typically, is David. Thank you. Um, would be David, I think, at least for me. David just screams hero. I know, uh, you know, Daniel kind of hung out with lions. Uh, Noah built an ark. Uh, Paul, you know, kept, uh, was out on shipwrecked islands. Peter walked on water for a second. Um, but when you think of a, when you think of a hero, uh, you, think, you think of David. And there's no greater hero story with David than that great story of David and Goliath. And so we're going to look at a portion of that this morning, and then we're going to kind of look at the breadth of David's life, and we're going to look at what it means to be heroic, what it means to be a hero. So I want to catch you up to the story. We're in 1 Samuel 17, and it says this in verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why do, you come out and line, why, why, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you're not the servant of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So you have this battle scene. You have the Israelites on one side. You have the Philistines on the other. And Goliath walks out and says, Okay, guys, let's, let's turn this into a like, one-on-one battle, which is easy to say when you're nine feet tall. You know, if you're nine, you know, who doesn't want it to be a one-on-one battle when you're nine feet tall? So Goliath steps out, says, who wants to fight me? Who is it? Now, the Israelites, they're all looking at each other. They're going, hey, you want to fight him? I don't want to fight him. You want to fight him? You're going to I'm not. They're all looking at each other going, I don't want to fight that guy. They're all looking for someone to step up. They're all looking around to each other, and they're saying, someone, please, someone, please be a hero. Someone be heroic. Here's an interesting thing as we think about our lives. And you guys may not realize this, or you may not feel it, but here's the reality. There are people in your life, in your life, and in my life, that need us to be heroes. They they need us to be heroes. There are people in our lives that need us to be heroes. And it's not just once, it's not just twice, but there are people in our lives that are looking for us that need us to be heroic. There are people in our lives that need us to be strong when it's time to be strong, that need us to be courageous when it's time to be courageous. There are people in our lives that need us and are expecting us and long for us and want us to do do things for other people that we would want done to ourselves. We have people in our lives that look to us and we may never feel it and we may not get it, but they need us to be a hero. Every child looks at his mom or his dad and hopes that they'll be heroic, that they'll be courageous, that they will stand firm, that they will walk alongside them when things are tough. Every wife looks at her husband and hopes that he will be a hero, 
that hopes that he will stay strong, that hopes that he will not waver, that hopes that he will not go anywhere, hopes that he will walk with her during hard times and difficult times. Every parent, we sit here, and I stand up here, we pray and dream that our kids will be heroes. And I'm not talking game-winning hits, I'm not talking valedictorians, I'm talking, uh, I'm talking being heroic. When they're faced with temptation, when they have the opportunity to go one way or another way, we pray, we hope that our kids will be heroes. We send them off to college, we put them behind the wheel, we send them out on Friday nights, we say, have a nice time at prom, and we hope and we pray that our kids will be heroes. If you are here between the age of 10 and the age of 30, I guarantee you this, you may not feel it, but your parents are dreaming and hoping and praying that you will be a hero, that you will stand strong when it's time to stand strong, that you will be courageous when it's time to be courageous, that when you are given the opportunity to go one way or the other way, you go the right way. Your parents are looking at you and saying, we pray that you will be heroic. Every one of us. You sit here, I stand up here. Every one of us, we have people in our lives that are looking for us to be heroes. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone you work with. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's someone you don't even know. We, we live around each other and we're just hoping and praying that we will be heroic with one another. That's what's going on with the Israelites. They're looking at each other and going, someone stand strong. They're looking at each other and saying, someone step up. It says this in 1 Samuel 17, verse 16. I can't believe it. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. For 40 days, he comes out, this Philistine, and looks for someone to step up. And that shouldn't surprise us. Because every day, our giants come out to us and look at us and stare us down. I mean, it, it's not unique to David that he faced something troubling and difficult and challenging because we all face our giants. And sure, our, our giants don't wear coats of armor. Our giants don't wield swords or spears. But our giants are still there. They come out to us with weapons of depression. They stare us down with weapons of um, insecurity, of loneliness, of financial struggle, of addiction, of troubled relationships. Our, our, our giants, they come out to us the same way every day, and they're daunting, and they're scary, and they're big. For some of us, some of those things in our lives are so big that they take the wind out of our sails. So for some of us, those things are so big that they knock us out at the knees. For some of us, we brought our giants on ourselves. For some of us, um, they seem to come out of nowhere. But we all have them. They're scary. They, they, they make us afraid. Now, Goliath, he comes out every day for 40 days, and he taunts them, and he mocks them, and he stares them down, and he, and he shouts them back. And our giants do the same thing to us. They, they taunt us. They mock us. They shout us down. They whisper lies. They tell us things like, we're nobodies. We're going nowhere. I told you this would happen to you. Nobody likes you. You're so ugly. You'll never make it. You'll be like that forever. Our, our giants do the same exact thing. They whisper lies to us every day. 
and we listen to them. And, and we listen to them. I have mine. I'm sure you have yours. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you got something that, that, that you look at every day and it whispers those lies. Whispers those lies. What we're going to learn this morning from David is how to tackle that. What we're going to learn from David is how to take down a giant. And look what the giant's doing to the Israelites in 1 Samuel 17. In verse 24 it says this, Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites have been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage, which I'm sure doesn't uh, make her too excited, but, and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. So look, look at the strategy to take it down. It's like, hey, looking for a tax break? You know, you can run up the mountain and try to kill, you know. We run to Texas, they run up a hill. Um, I don't know. And you look at it and you go, that's the strategy? That's your great plan, Saul? You want to have a heart-to-heart and say, really, Saul? That's how you're going to try to tackle it? You're going to, what, try to throw money at it or try to, try to devise some scheme, try to handle it on your own strength? What, did someone tell you it was a good idea, Saul? Or is that what the king down the road did? You want to look at Saul and say, really, that's how you're going to handle it? And I'd like, you'd want to look at Saul and, and really tell him a, a better way. You'd want to say, Saul, I got someone that you can invite into the situation that can give you strength and hope and peace and wisdom Enjoy through the battle. I want to give you someone that could give you the strength and the character and the ability to actually conquer it, to actually defeat it, to actually win. And that's what David does. David goes to Saul. He goes up to them all and he says, what you're doing isn't working. You're trying to tackle it on your own strength. You're trying to devise your own plan. David looks at him and goes, it's not working, is it? It's not. David goes, I want, I want to show you a better way. David goes, I want to show you how to take down a giant. And this is what it goes on to say in verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. You see, Saul sees a boy. Saul sees a giant. Look what David sees. This is what it says down the passage as we read on. In verse 36, it says, a living God. In verse 30, 37, it says, the Lord who saved me. In verse 45, it says, the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. The verse 46, it says, the Lord will conquer, the God of Israel. In verse 47, the Lord will rescue, the Lord will provide. All Saul sees is Goliath, all David sees is God. All Saul sees is Goliath. All David sees is God. You know, David's thoughts on God outnumber his thoughts on Goliath nine to two. Nine to two. Are we four times more likely to look at God than our problems? Are we two times more likely to focus on God than our problems? Is it 50-50? Do we maybe never even bring God into the equation at all? Is sometimes, do we, as we deal with the things of life, sometimes God, like, 
a non-factor. Every morning I walk the dog. I walk the dog, get up and walk the dog for like a half an hour. And when I walk the dog for a half an hour, I break it up into like four different segments. The first part of my walk is I kind of train the dog, try to get it to sit and stay and all those things, which doesn't work. But um, the second part of my walk, I have four kids, so I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do today, what games I'm going to go to and all those things like that. The third part of my walk, I usually pick a golf course and like pretend I'm playing it in my brain. Like I'm walking, I'll pretend I'm playing every hole and stuff like that. The end of my walk, what I do is I think about all the things I worry about the night before. I think about all my worries. I think about all my fears. Do you ever lie awake at night worrying? I mean, do you ever like, like lie awake at night and think about all the things that are troubling you? You know, I'll lie awake and I'll, I'll like, like maybe three o'clock and like every little worry, every little thing. And do you ever like create worst case scenarios? Like, okay, you, whatever is your problem, you like, I take it to, okay, I'm going to take it to whatever can go wrong. I sit there, I, and, I work, and I'm like, I'm, I'm much more afraid of the dark as an adult than I ever was as a kid. Do you ever lie awake at worrying at night? And it's interesting. In the mornings when I'm walking the dog, I like bring my worries and my little things, and, and I kind of think of them at the end. And, I, and then I, I thought to myself, what if I actually took my fears and my concerns and my worries, and what if I actually used that time and brought them to God? What if I actually used that time to like invite God into the equation? To actually say, God, I'm scared. I'm alone. I'm afraid. I don't know what to do, and I need you. A lot of times we don't bring God into the equation. Maybe we don't bring him into the equation because we don't think he cares. Or maybe we think it's not going to matter. Or maybe we think he's not going to be there. Maybe we, think, maybe we don't even think about him at all. Sometimes I don't think about God because I, I equate God with my job, and I don't want to think about my job. So sometimes I don't think about God. It's learning to invite God into the battles and the struggles and the fears and the worries of our lives. Are we four times more likely to think about God than our problems? David's teaching the Israelites, David is teaching Saul, that it is not about relying on their own strength. It is not relying about their own cleverness. It is not relying on themselves at all, but it's learning to rely and depend on God. So David and Goliath, they square off. It says this in verse 45. Look how David talks as I read this. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord says. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine. With a sling and a stone, without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He, he took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut his head off with the sword. Do you see that contrast? 
I love that. But do you see that contrast? It's that great contrast. You see a boy and you see a giant. You see, you see a you see a stone and you see a sword. It's this great, incredible contrast of us realizing that it doesn't matter how big, it doesn't matter how daunting, it doesn't matter how powerful, it doesn't matter how strong or how scary or how fearful you are. With God, we can tackle anything. With God, we can get through anything. With God, he will give us the strength to battle through it. He will give us the strength and the perception and the ability to work through the things. It's that great picture that with God, we can go up and tackle anything. We can get it. We can get it. We can do it through God's strength. Through God's strength. And I love what it says. I love that picture. It shows us like what you're going to do if you want to take down a giant. It says, Goliath moved closer. David ran after him. Took him out with the stone. And then I love this. Grabbed his sword and cut off his head. I love that. You want to take down a giant? You go after it. You lock arms with God. You grab it. And you cut off its head. You cut off its head. I tried running from my giants. I tried pretending my giants aren't there. I've tried wishing them away. I've tried numbing myself so I couldn't feel them. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. If we want to take down our giants, we lock arms with God and we go after them. I've stood face to face with the giant of depression. I locked arms with God and I said, let's go, and I took it on. I said, that's as far as you go. I battled drinking, I battled gambling, and I said, no more. That's it. It stops here. I battled disappointment in my life, and I've said, God, I need you. And I looked it square in the face and I said, you are not going to get the best of me. You are not going to get the best of me. You want to take down a giant, you look it square in the eye, you rally with God, and you take it on. What's it for you? What's your battle? That giant of divorce wants to come into your family. What if you met it at the front door and you said, not in my house? Not in my house. What if you looked at depression or addiction? Loneliness. What if you locked arms with God and you went after it? What if you dealt with the things in your life that you're fearful of and you're scared of? When's the last time you took a swing at your giant? When's the last time you locked arms with God and said, let's go, and you went after it? Didn't ignore it. Didn't run from it. Didn't numb yourself so you didn't feel it. When's the last time you took a swing at it? For me, I don't know. I don't know what will come over that hill one day. I have no idea. It might be big. It might be daunting. It might take the wind out of my sails. It might knock me out at the knees, but I know what I'll do. I might roll up into a ball for a second and kind of regroup and gather myself. And then at one point, I will get up. I will tell God, let's go. And I will give it the fight of its life. When's the last time you went after it? You dealt with it. You said, God, I need you. And you took it on. And you took a swing at it. That's what life's about sometimes. 
It's looking at the things in our life that we're afraid of and we're scared of, and we can either run from them or we can either hide from them or we can say, God, I need you, and embrace God and go after him. That's what David does. He goes after Goliath and kills him. Now, David, because he kills him, he's like the talk of the town. Everybody's excited about David. You know, the problem is, is there's, a, there's, a, there's a king called Saul. Now, people kind of like Saul, but people love David. People are singing songs in the streets about David. So they're so excited about David that Saul was jealous. Saul wants to kill David. So David takes off. David all of a sudden becomes very un-David-like. He runs. He hides. He retreats. He takes off. He backs down. He finds himself in this city, city called Nob. And it says this in 1 Samuel 21. David went to the city of Nob to see Ahimelech. He's the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he saw him. Now, because this is like the famous David. Why are you alone, he asked. Now, David's normally traveling like with a group of men. So Ahimelech's looking at him. He's going, David, what are you doing here? Why are you by yourself? You're normally with a group of men. You normally have an entourage. It would be like if like, the president of the United States knocks on your door and opens up, and he's, sitting, he's there by himself, and you'd go, hey, great to see you, but like, where are the guys with the glasses and the leer things? You know, you know, that's what's going on here. Ahimelech's looking at him like, David, why are you here? Why is no one with you? The king has sent me on a private matter, David said. He told me not to tell anyone why I'm here. The king hasn't sent him on anything. He's out running from the king. He, he, he's starting to slowly, we're starting to slow da- see David be very un-David-like. We're starting to see David as he's lying. He's deceiving. He, he's, he's, he, he's cowering. He's being very deceitful. We're starting to see David be something that was so counter to the David that we had just seen in the battle of Goliath. And you're like, what's happened to David? And what happens to David is is what can happen to us. There are certain emotions that we can feel. These emotions are fear and isolation and loneliness and rejection. And when we feel these emotions, we can do things that are like so counter to who we are. You know, I can think of myself, some of the dumbest things, stupidest things, The what was I thinking moments happened because I felt lonely. I felt isolated. I felt rejected. And I felt afraid. And we can feel the same thing. So what we have to do when we feel those emotions, we have to fight every urge inside of us because we want to act out. We want to lash out. We want to go after. And we want to act in ways that are so counter to who we really are. And that's what we're seeing in David. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling isolated. You're feeling lonely. You're feeling rejected. You're feeling afraid. It's reminding ourselves to fight that notion and those things that churn up inside of us to act out, to lash out, to act in ways that are so counter to who we really are. And this is what also happens to us when we feel isolated and lonely and rejected we start to wonder, where's God? We start to think, God's, God's, God's left us. God, why are we hanging out here? What happened to God? Every morning, I drive my son down to San Juan Capistrano to play baseball at his school. And whenever you, when you're on the freeway, and maybe you notice this too, when you're on the roads at the same time all the time, you start to see some of the same people, like people are on the same schedule. So you see a lot of the same cars. 
So as I'm driving down to San Juan, there's always a, there's always a van that I see, and, it's a, and the van has Jesus saves, repent, and trust God on it. Now, it's not like a bumper sticker. You know how vans are like wrapped in, like wrapped in like stuff? So this thing is wrapped in Jesus saves, repent, and trust God all over it. So I see it every day, and you're always kind of wondering who's the guy you know, who drives the Jesus saves van and stuff. So I'm driving down, and so one morning as I'm driving down, I look, and it's broken down on the side of the road. The hood's up, and he's standing out there. And I'm like, the Jesus save van can't be broken down on the side of the road. I mean, like, that can't happen. I mean, that's terrible for advertising, you know? Are you kidding me? And imagine, like, the free-for-all people are having when they drive by that thing. You know, like, laughing at that guy, the Jesus saves man. Like, I'd love to pull over and help you and save you, but if Jesus saves, then, you know, you're good, I'll be good to go. So I'm sure he's getting mocked. I'm sure he's getting ridiculed. So I drive by him, drop my son off. I'm heading back, and I'm heading into traffic, bumper to bumper, kind of. And I look over, and he's still there. And you can just see he's kind of perplexed now, you know, hands above his head, kind of like, you know, this, this isn't going how he thought it would go. And you have to think he would be thinking, God, I drive the Jesus Saves van. How do you let me break down? This can't happen. This is not what's supposed to happen. He's got to feel like, God, where are you? God, how did this happen? God, why is this happening? Same thing David has to be feeling. He's isolated. He's lonely. He's scared. He has to be thinking, where is God? Why is this happening? What's going on, God? And then all of a sudden, God is about to remind him that he hasn't gone anywhere. God's going to remind him that he hasn't gone anywhere. David's lying to this priest, Ahimelech. He's deceiving this priest, Ahimelech. And so he's hungry, and he goes to him in verse 3. Now what is there to eat? Give me five loaves of bread or anything else you have. We don't have any regular bread, the priest replied, but there is this holy bread, which I guess you can have if your men have not slept with any women recently. Don't worry, David replied. I never allow my men. Now at this time there aren't aren't any men to be with the women when they are on a campaign. And since they stay clean, even on ordinary trips, how much more on this one? So since there's no other food available, the priest gave him the holy bread, the bread of the presence that was placed before the Lord in the tabernacle. It had just been replaced that day with fresh bread. Now Doag, the Edomite, Saul's chief herdsman, was there that day for ceremonial ceremonial purification. So he's desperate, he's hungry, he's lonely, and then David asks for this. David says to Ahimelech in verse 8, Do you have a spear or a sword? The king's business was so urgent, I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. Like, don't you mean you're like running from the king, David? Ahimelech says, I only have this sword. You know, the sword of Goliath, David. The Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, the priest replied. And at that moment, every emotion in David must have raced back because David asks Ahimelech for a sword. And Ahimelech goes and he gets a sword and he goes, I only have this sword, David. You know, you know Goliath's sword? You know, the, the, the one you killed, Goliath? You know that time when you trusted God? 
when you relied on God, when you leaned on God, when you had that realization that with God you can deal with and do anything. You don't have to lie. You don't have to cheat. You don't have to deceive. You don't have to run. You don't have to hide. He goes, he goes I have this sword, David. Remember that great reminder that when this little stone took down the big guy with this sword, God gave David a reminder that he hadn't gone anywhere. That when you trust him and lean on him, that God and you can can conquer anything. We don't have to run. We don't have to hide. We don't have to retreat. Because Ahimelech helps David out, Saul has Ahimelech, the 85 priests, their wives, their children, and the whole town wiped out. Kills them all. All because David chose to lie, deceit, cheat, hide, all those things. Deaths on the hands of David. And those are not the only deaths that are in the hands of David. Because you remember David becomes king. Has an affair with a woman named Bathsheba. Has her husband killed in order to conceal the affair. But here's that great reminder of David. Because God uses David. And it's that great reminder of it doesn't matter how broken we are, doesn't matter how much we're messed up, doesn't matter the roads that we go down, doesn't matter how many times we, we, we flounder and fail, God still loves us, God still uses us, God still cares about us. You know, out of all the guys in the Bible who's mostly, most closely connected to Jesus, it's David. In Matthew, when it's talking about the genealogy and it talks about Jesus, it's Jesus, son of David. Through the Gospels, when Jesus is introduced and talked about, it's Jesus, son of David. Because one day God made David a promise. One day God made David a covenant. And it didn't matter if he was a blow it. It didn't matter if he failed. It didn't matter how many times he messed up. God made a covenant with him that the Messiah would come from his line. God said this in 2 Samuel 7, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And a thousand years later, after that promise, in the city of David, the Messiah was born. Jesus, son of David. God kept his promise. God kept his covenant. It didn't matter how broken he was. It didn't matter how many times he messed up. God still kept his promise. And you know, God has made a promise to us. God has made a covenant with us. It's a blood covenant. It's when Jesus went to the cross and died, God made a covenant with us that that would be the final sin sacrifice to take away the sins of the world, to make us right with God. And it doesn't matter how broken we are, doesn't matter how messed up we are, doesn't matter how many times we fail, God made a promise and a covenant with us. And this is what that that shed blood did for us. In Galatians 4 it says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. You see, when God sent Jesus into the world to die on the cross, this wasn't just about us getting to heaven. This wasn't just about our sins being forgiven. This was about the notion that we are adopted, that we are are brought into a family, that we are actually God's children. You see, it's incredibly intimate. It's incredibly relationship, it, relational. This is not just about getting to heaven. It's about God reminding us that incredible relationship that we're in. And it says this, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. 
the spirit who calls out Abba. That's the same Aramaic term that Jesus used in the Aramaic term that Jesus used in the garden to refer to his father. It was so real and so intimate that, that Jesus used it. And Paul, Paul uses the same word because Paul doesn't want to use father because that seems too formal. Paul wants us to be reminded of how intimate, how connecting this relationship is with God. That as he uses the word Abba, what actually means dad or daddy. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Not just a father. This is not just about getting into heaven. This is the fact that we are children of God and that we have a father who loves us that says, call me dad. Every, every night I tuck my girls into bed. And I tuck them into bed and then I pray with them most of the time. And then I, uh, when I turn around, I always point at them and I say, who loves you? And they roll their eyes at me because they're too old for it. But they say, you do, dad. They go, you do, dad. And this is God looking at every one of us and saying, who loves you? And it's every one of us looking back at him and saying, you do, Dad. You do, Dad. Why is this so important? Because we, are, we have things that we battle and struggle with. We have, we have forks in the road every day that we come up against. We're going to go one way or we're going to go another way. And if we're talking about tackling the tough things in life, if we are talking, talking about locking arms with God and going after it, This is that great reminder that we're not locking arms with some distant God. We're not locking arms with some God who kind of cares about us. We're not locking uh, locking arms with God who like we're like a passing thought. We're like locking arms with a God who says, I love you so much. Why don't you just call me dad? Why don't you just call me dad? That's how much he loves us. Every day we're forced and faced with the battle, with the struggle. And we have to decide which way we're going to go. We have to look at those things and say, are we going to lock arms with God and go after them, or are we going to run from them? Are we going to hide? Are we going to pretend they're not there? Are are we going to give in to them and and have those, what were we thinking moments, or to to do that all over again moments, all those things? Are, are, Are we going to really honestly tackle them, just us and God? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? I want to end with a quote from Braveheart. You, you can't have a sword without ending with the Braveheart quote. So it's a great, it's a great movie. And, and what it is, it's a movie, it's a battle between the Scottish and the English. And so you have the, uh, the nobles of Scotland against the lords of England. And so the Scottish don't have a king, so England kind of takes them over. And every time the Scottish want to kind of rise up or, or, go, or, or kind of set their own course, the English, the English lords kind of throw money at them or try to bribe them with land, till a guy named William Wallace comes on the scene. And William Wallace rallies the Scottish troops together. And there's this great scene where you have on one side, you have the Scottish troops, and they're a ragtag bunch with makeshift weapons, and they're, they're, they're all over on this side of the valley. And on the other side of the valley, you have the, the English and their sophisticated weapons, they're all on one side. And William Wallace comes on the scene, And he looks at his Scottish army and he says, I see before me an army of my brothers here to stand in the face of tyranny. And and then he says, you come together as free men and free you are. 
where would you be without your freedom? And then he looks at his Scottish army and he says, will you fight? And some raggedy guy steps out of the line, points at the English and says, against them? He says, no. We will run. And we will live. And William Wallace looks at him and says, fight and you may die. Run and you will live. At least for a while. But one day, many years from now, while lying on your deathbed, you would give everything from this point to that point to have the opportunity to come back to this very moment and this very time to stare into the face of your enemy and tell them that they may take your life, but they cannot take your freedom. And what he's saying is this, no regrets. Don't wish you had to do it all over again. He's saying don't run, don't hide, don't leave. Deal with it. We're saying locking arms with God and going after it. Life is this fork in the road. We can go either way. I propose we look at God and we say, we need you, God. We need your strength. Will you help us to go after it and see what God will do? Where's your battle? What are you afraid of? What, what scares you? What are you dealing with? Maybe today it's time to, to tell God you're ready to go after it and lean on him. Allow God to continue to speak to you as we continue to worship.